Today, indeed, uh, I'll be uh, talking about how international organizations or IOs uh, talk about, view, or see, or construct uh, migration as an issue. Um, to a large extent, this will be based on the book which, is, which has started to circulate. And I should probably uh, sort of contextualize why I'm interested in this, interested in this topic. Um, after my PhD, which I did here, as I already told you, I spent almost 10 years working at UNESCO, at UNESCO headquarters in Paris. Uh, as you know, UNESCO is the UN agency for education, science, culture, and so on. And there was a small migration unit, which was actually set up uh, in the early 2000, 2001, if I remember. Um, precisely because migration was becoming a big topic at the global, international level among other UN agencies. So they wanted to do something about migration and actually they happened to recruit me. And I spent 10 years uh, there. And so I've been you know, sort of embedded uh, into this uh, international relations culture. And I've been, um, you know, and the good thing was that UNESCO was not a key organization, it's not the NHCR, it's not UNDP, it's not World Bank, it's not IOM, so it's not a key player. So you've got a nice kind of a graphical distance um, to the other key players at the national level on migration. But still, you, I would spend a lot of time hanging around with uh, IOM people, different meetings, and became interested in how they, they construct uh, migration. Uh, for lots of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is obviously, as you all know, uh, when you talk about migration at the national level, I think in France, it's all about you know, problems and uh, racism and rejection, expulsion and fighting irregular migration. Then I would go and enter the UNESCO building. It was about migration development, promises and migration, and uh, great opportunities uh, for well-managed migration for the global growth and human rights and peace and security. So you know, whether you were in or out of the building made a big difference in terms of how you talked about uh, migration. And this contrast sort of you know, uh, incited me to think about what exactly am I, am I doing, am I talking about when I'm in this uh, building where I was working. Uh, so that's probably the main reason I was interested in this topic. So perhaps there's an obvious bias here. Perhaps I care about something nobody cares because nobody's really interested in what UNESCO other agencies say. Nevertheless, I happen to be interested because I actually was embedded in this for quite a while. And somehow there's a quote I'll, I'll read after, but if you're in this kind of setting, either you sort of, you know, um, you sort of uh, influenced to the extent that you start thinking like an I.O. when you work for an I.O., or you have to deconstruct the kind of uh, discursive, narrative, ideological framework in which you work in order to keep a kind of sort of autonomous way of thinking. So it's either or nothing. You cannot simply, you know, uh, stand here and do nothing. Either you deconstruct it or you actually, you are constructed by it. So that's the kind of, you know, kind of sort of fighting spirit that sort of uh, inspired my, my thinking about this. Um, so more specifically, um, the, what mainly uh, UNESCO and other UN colleagues we were doing throughout this decade was mostly, I mean, there were lots of things, obviously, but a lot of the energy was spent on uh, writing reports. Um, when I started uh, at UNESCO, um, it was in the middle of the work of the Global Commission on International Migration, the GCIM. Some of you may have heard about the GCIM Commission, which was already quite uh, more than a decade old now. But you know, there were meetings all over the world, and people were very happy and enthusiastic about this. Oh, wonderful, the Global Commission set up by Vietnam, we're going to rethink completely immigration policy worldwide. There were lots of optimism uh, surrounding this. And it 
the, the sort of the you know, publication of reports went on. There was then a few years later there was the big UNDP report on migration and human development, which probably some of you already know and have read about migration as an opportunity as a key aspect of human development. And there were all the different IOM reports, and there were all these you know, regular publication. And usually, you know, all new agencies are consulted, and there are meetings, preparatory meetings, expert meetings, and I happened to attend some of them. And so we were really involved in sort of producing knowledge or producing worldviews about migration, which was the kind of typical thing to do for an academic. I had, you know, I, was, I had a PhD, so I was used to write about migration, but it was a very different activity from what you do when you're a researcher, nevertheless. So there was this kind of distance, you know, writing about migration. Uh, in the kind of institutional capacity, uh, which you know, was, was quite was striking to me when I arrived there. I tried to keep it striking to me not to become too much used to it. So what, this is what I call international migration narratives. Basically, uh, international migration narratives. I refer to the body of reports published by key IOs on migration, which include the GCN report, for example, the different World Migration Reports by IOM, the UNDP report, ILO reports, the World Bank reports on remittances, for example, all this body of reports published by IOs. So it's a lot of pages. Now, when I started working on this, 4,500 pages of, of reports. Basically, they tend to say always the same things, roughly speaking. But nevertheless, it's, it's kind of a body of knowledge which I thought had to be sort of critically uh, investigated. So this is what I call the national migration narratives, which I call also IMEN. And the key question probably here, what I want to discuss, is actually what is this, what are these reports all about? Do they produce knowledge? Do they actually produce data? Do they produce sort of narratives about why migration happens, the causes of migration, how the impact on sending countries, on receiving countries, uh, and so on? Or are they a kind of act of power? Which means this is what should be done in terms of immigration policy. This is what we should do, uh, sort of prescribing normative policy uh, recommendations. Obviously, these are the two, the two uh, things happen at the same time. But nevertheless, I guess this sort of you know, knowledge power relationship uh, is probably the, the broad framework in which I, I sort of you know, construct my, my own research. Uh, so yes, knowledge politics, an obvious relationship, but perhaps uh, slightly understudied in, in migration studies. Actually, for this book, I was very much interested in development studies. Uh, development studies, at least my impression, was that was very clear about uh, knowledge, um, about you know, critical assessment of what knowledge is produced by whom. So you have lots of work on who knows what about development, who says what development is all about, who defines the needs of the country, and all sorts of questions. You know, who is the author of the report? Is this a think tank? Uh, is this an independent researcher? In what language is the report published? So kind of critical reflection on what we know. Uh, and indeed, uh, an obvious aspect of any policy or political debate is you know, the evidence-based the knowledge. And my, my view, perhaps I'm wrong, but it seemed to me development studies already like 20 years ago, especially with the sort of postmodern take on development as, a, as, a, as only a discourse, a kind of you know, Escobar type of things, uh, made it quite clear that you have to be cautious about uh, who defines what development is. You cannot take for granted that development exists or that there's something called uh, development policy or development needs. These, these are constructed by some people and that's a power uh, issue. My impression is that perhaps migration studies are slightly, um, I mean, not as developed as development studies in that uh, respect, even though obviously a hot topic like migration is today generates a lot of knowledge. 
knowledge production is, uh, is a direct consequence of the political relevance of the topic. And therefore, um, as a migration researcher, you tend to be surrounded by all sorts of knowledge produced, not only by researchers, but by think tanks, by international organizations, by political parties, by the EU, and so on and so forth. It's actually difficult to keep track of everything that's published, as I guess you all know, on migration, uh, especially because it's an institutional production of knowledge um, that, that, that exists uh, out there. And here's the quote I was mentioning. The Rem speaks of development narratives as a query to be captured, otherwise it captures you. So I think it's a nice quote. Um, either you win and you deconstruct the, the, the narratives, or you lose and then you become you start thinking like the narrative. So it's, a, it's really a kind of intellectual fight. So perhaps it's too excessive way of framing the issue, but I like this image of that you, know, you confront yourself to text and those texts, either you overcome it or you are sort of defeated by, by this text. It's a kind of you know, intellectual uh, rapport de force, as you would say yeah. in, uh, in French, you use it in English too. Um, so um, this is oh, the overall framework, and I used a lot uh, in this book, a lot of studies from the development uh, studies, sort of called critical development studies, which my impression was were very useful in terms of assessing uh, the role uh, and often the implicit political role of knowledge in thinking about a given topic. Um, so perhaps a few, uh, when we talk about knowledge politics in the field of migration, a few observations. Uh, you have a lot of debates on data. Obviously, you all know uh, whether you mention <coughs> figures in terms of trafficking, irregular migration, or whatever. You always have people who say, hey, wait a minute, this data is unreliable because this, because that, and it's wrongly measured, you have to measure it differently, and so on. So that's, that's a regular uh, issue in migration uh, debates, both at the scientific and policy level, which indeed hints about the relationship between knowledge and politics. Uh, you've got the traditional lament that politicians, policymakers disregard academic knowledge and expert knowledge. It's a standard uh, lament that you can find, you know, it's been going on for a while. Uh, and that indeed, if policymakers were to listen more to you know, sound, wise knowledge, then things would look out very differently on the ground. Um, I'm, I'm not sure it's really relevant as a critique, but nevertheless, it's something that you often hear that's worth mentioning. And you've got also the argument that. Uh, things are too complex uh, for simple or simplistic policy discourse uh, to capture. Uh, for example, uh, climate migration, ongoing discussion, uh, whether it exists, whether it doesn't exist, whether you can you know, distinguish those migrants from migrate because of climate change, how many there are, are there many, are there not so many. Um, and the complexity of the issue would be such that somehow political discourse, policymakers would be unable to capture. Uh, the topic and by nature be excessively uh, simplistic and unable to understand that. The same with migration development, our remittance is good for development, it's just too complex, no long-term, short-term effects depending on the context, good governance, all sorts of, of observations. And that's indeed uh, when, you, you know, when you're asked by the media uh, what should be done, usually you say, oh, it's so complicated that and you start sort of developing the standard academic discourse on you know, what uh, the complexity you know and people are not aware of. And perhaps a few more technical and specific references. You probably all know the work of Christina Boswell on political use of knowledge. The idea being that knowledge is a kind of tactical tool which some uh, actors, some policymakers use um, to legitimize their position. And then the idea is to what extent is my power position, so to say, um, makes it necessary for me to rely upon knowledge or not. So it's a kind of you know, the assumption that indeed a knowledge is a 
you know, key aspect in any policy debate, policy making process, and that people tactically rely on this to justify their position. Uh, I guess you all know the nice, very nice paper by Oliver Bakewell on policy irrelevant research. Uh, Oliver Bakewell has this idea that if you're too policy relevant, somehow you fail to question the key categories and the key way of thinking that actually lead to problems. So actually, policy relevant research, I mean, really policy relevant research would be irrelevant because it would question the very assumptions upon which policy making is based. And therefore, you know, somehow, useless research is more useful than uh, useful research. I mean, it's a kind of a complex uh, uh, sentence, but you see, you see the argument. Uh, I guess very uh, relevant argument, obviously, for, for, this, for this knowledge power. Uh, relationship, and perhaps you also know papers by uh, B.S. Kimney on uh, the geopolitics, so to say, of refugee research. Uh, the idea that refugee research, to put it very simply, is embedded in the geopolitical context, and that it basically follows the geopolitical interest of dominant receiving countries in the global north, and indeed, uh, research research communities. Um, and especially also the role of IOs like the UNHCR within those research communities um, make up for a kind of epistemic community, uh, people who sort of you know, are brought into, sort of join a group of people, like-minded, who think about the same, think the same way. And this is very strong in justifying the position of an IO because epistemic communities uh, like you know, the research uh, on refugees or like also the research on climate change with the of the, the English acronym, I forgot about it. But anyway, there's those sort of networks of researchers are very useful for IOs to justify their position and to legitimize uh, the rightness of, of what they do. So a few key references, which I'm, I guess you're aware of, just to, to sort of you know, specify uh, what, how I, I sort of put my argument into this, this, this broader framework. Um, so, slightly more you know, in terms of political science working on ideas and knowledge, there are basically two simple ways of constructing this. Either you see IOs, uh, sorry, you see ideas as tactical device, so something you use to push forward your interest, so ideas don't play a role. They are simply a kind of blah blah which is taken up by an actor if this blah blah is useful for its power uh, relations. So basically, ideas are not worth investigating per se. Uh, what's interesting is how they are used by political <coughs> actors. So the content of the discourse is not really relevant. What's relevant is the political use of uh, knowledge. That's the first way of looking at things. And the second way of looking at things is more like a cognitive approach in which you argue that even those with the size power are actually embedded in the paradigm and therefore construct the world in a specific, in specific way. And therefore, ideas are hugely influential in that respect because they actually shape the way people think about problems and therefore the way they design solutions and so on and so forth. So very, two very different ways of constructing the role of ideas in politics. Um, on the one hand, you know, if you strictly believe in the first take, there's no reason to study ideas per se. What counts is the politics and the social usefulness and social reliance on ideas. But in the second case, it becomes useful to understand what text and what international migration <coughs> narratives are about, because the assumption is that some people who take decisions, actually even without knowing it sometimes, rely implicitly on a body of knowledge, on a body of on a discourse, on a body of assumptions uh, that guide their thinking about the topic. And that makes it, you know, 
um, that will determine the way they react to a given political uh, challenge. Uh, uh, I think that with IOs, both apply. Uh, very obviously, as I already said, knowledge is used by IOs. Experts are used by IOs to legitimize their position. Um, you know, when I used to be a PhD student here in Oxford before working at UNESCO, and then I met the people I had met in Oxford as experts in different kinds of IOs meetings. So actually, I could see, you know, I had met them as a PhD student here, and I would meet them as internationalization uh, functionnaire, civil servants in uh, IOs meetings. So I could actually see, you know, the, the, the political use of expertise and the way key scholars can play a role in justifying or motivating. Um, a, a specific approach uh, by an I.O. But also I think I.O.s do diffuse <coughs> ideas, norms, concepts that tend to be taken for granted. Um, the very idea, if you look, it's very interesting to look at the history of development thinking or human rights thinking because those ideas were highly uh, contested initially. You know, there used to be really, uh, lots of people would disagree and say this is total nonsense. But progressively, these ideas became taken for granted. And we all tend to assume that something called development exists. But you know, perhaps a few decades ago, it's not so clear. So the idea becomes more and more natural, so to say. The idea becomes more and more um, sort of straightforward, unpredictably taken for granted. And IOs do not necessarily invent those ideas, but they play a key role in, for example, promoting a given concept, for example, human development, borrowed from people like Anna Sen, and sort of really embodied into a very real policy framework with the Human Development Index, doing different reports, capabilities approach, and so on and so forth. So in that respect, I think we are influenced by the ideas promoted by IOs, sometimes even without being aware of that even though we also know that those ideas are tactically used by institutions in order to legitimize their position in a specific field, as, as, as Bourdieu would, would put it. Um, so I've, another issue I've often come across is lots of people have told me, well, why do you read all this stuff? It's completely useless. Um, why do you bother reading this stuff? Uh, it's just blah, blah. Uh, so, so I think that's indeed uh, enough a regular position you encounter when you talk to people about this. They'll tell you, well, you know, they are just publishing stuff. Nobody reads that. Only interns are writing this because they have to if they want to get a job. And it's just showing off. It's just communicating. The content is completely useless. Anyway, those IOs are completely aligned for money and for political reasons. Uh, aligned on the interest of the global north. They cannot do anything that would hurt the interest of the US or the UK or Germany or whatever. So they're not going to change anything. They're just talking and it's empty blah blah and uh, no, there's no even there's no point in, in, in reading this and there's even less point in, in, in critically analyzing those discourses. So I see the argument and indeed perhaps from a strictly realist perspective, those blah blah does not really make a big change on the ground. So somehow you can argue, well, why bother? Um, then other people are much more optimistic. They see IOs as a source of sort of new enlightened uh, visions of what migration policy should be, new types of partnerships based on the migration development synergy, uh, kind of optimism surrounding uh, the intervention by IOs. Uh, this was very, very clear at the beginning, especially when the GCIM was working. Lots of people were really genuinely hoping that the GCIM could make a difference, could perhaps influence 
certain governments in their approach uh, to migration policy, being less restrictive, being more open to uh, you know, labor market needs and the need for labor migration, and the role of migration in fostering development and the, the interest in promoting migrants' human and labor rights to make migration more profitable for everybody. This type of aspirations, some people really believe that this would actually, uh, this, this intervention by IOS could make a difference. And I think a third answer to whether or not IOs are relevant as an object of study is a kind of more sort of governmentality, quote unquote, inspired approach in which you argue IOs sort of naturalize a specific way of constructing migration and they promote through a kind of soft and a soft power uh, manner, they promote norms and um, principles that actually fit into um, the, the, the global law of interest, but they do so in a kind of gentle and consensual way, which is perhaps uh, more efficient than the brutal way of imposing the standards from the global north to the global south. So IOS is kind of universalizers of specific standards, which would be sort of softly imposed upon others. And many people rely on Foucault and this type of, of of construction of power and how power is exercised to argue that IOs do play a role in this, this, this constructing issue of migration and of imposing worldviews uh, on weak uh, states and on NGOs, for example, all those people who, who are active in the, in the policymaking uh, field. So different answers to the key question. I have no sort of you know, predefined answer. I, I really don't know. I, I, you know. I've been working for, for, for NIO for, for 10 years. I just don't know exactly whether it was relevant or not, what we were doing exactly. But I've, I've met a lot of people asking me, why do you are interested in this? And apart from saying that I was involved in this, I think perhaps there are three broad ways of constructing the relevance of this research topic. And indeed, uh, when you talk about discourses and ideas, and frameworks and narratives, lots of, there are always some sort of realist people who tell you, well, there's no impact on the ground, why study it? Whereas an actual policy change, and like a visa policy change, for example, does have you know, an impact on the ground. This is, going, this is worth uh, studying. Um, so I don't know. I still think ideas matter. Uh, I also, I think that as idea producers in the, in the university, we have to study the ideas of others, and we have to study the, the, the importance of ideas out there. Otherwise, we sort of, you know, we, we sort of miss the point of our own work as producing ideas. But somehow, I'm not entirely uh, certain about what the impact of those ideas are. Uh, I tend to think, nevertheless, that there are a few of those key ideas promoted by IOs that progressively become standardized, in, including in academic migration uh, research. Um, the number of people working on migration development is huge. Uh, and I can't help feeling that somehow this is connected to the fact that key actors like the World Bank have decided that migration is a key issue in development uh, thinking. Perhaps I'm wrong. It's difficult to make a correlation and to prove it from a sort of sound methodological way. But nevertheless, uh, I tend to think that um, somehow we are influenced in the topics we choose, in the way we construct uh, issues, by those sort of ideas floating around. And some of the institutions that contribute to ideas floating around are precisely uh, big and powerful uh, IOs. And I also think that, perhaps I already said that, IOs are key players in producing uh, knowledge. They produce data. Uh, for example, if you work in remittances, it's very difficult to work without World Bank data. Uh, it's, I mean, of course, you can collect your own data, but at some point in any paper on remittances, you'll find a reference to the World Bank estimates of remittances. It's unavoidable. And as we all know, as social scientists, data is never neutral and quoting a, a sort of technical um, 
report by the World Bank on remittances estimate is never a neutral uh, act. It's always embedded in data needs a theory behind it to be, to be produced. Uh, so that's, that's pretty uh, obvious. Uh, they produce ideas, policy recommendation. That's perhaps easier to disagree with. You can easily uh, criticize the policy recommendation by IOs being too naive, being too simplistic, being contradictory. But they do produce this. They do, they do produce also networks, epistemic communities, uh, organizing conferences, um, soliciting people to write background papers, and all this type of, of work that is uh, that actually you know, knowledge is not sort of abstract ideas. It's embodied in social networks. It does produces knowledge, obviously. <laughs> and those networks are very much. Uh, sort of you know, involve very much the research community, academics, universities, think tanks, experts, and so on. And so knowledge is also a way of creating, sustaining uh, networks in which we are embedded, sometimes marginally, but somehow we nevertheless embedded in these networks. Uh, I would perhaps argue that even if you want to think against, this is something it's quite interesting to read Mary Douglas, for example, uh, how institutions think. Uh, she argues that even when you want to think against something, against the dominant framework, somehow you are influenced by this dominant framework, obviously, because precisely your thinking is sort of you know, guided upon the premise that you want to deconstruct the specific sort of counter discourse. So even if you disagree or even if you reject the network, somehow you're positioned according to this dominant uh, network. So IOs are key knowledge producers, uh, explicitly or implicitly, and that's why I think we, we, we need to read carefully what they say, and we need to you know, uh, make our opinion about this. It's very difficult, uh, because they talk about lots of different things, and there's no way you can actually have all the necessary knowledge to assess their relevance. Uh, for example, if you read a report on trafficking, uh, there'll be lots of numbers, lots of facts, evidence, there'll be lots of logical correlations because migrants or would-be migrants are ignorant of this and that, they will be trafficked more easily, all sorts of assumptions. And to criticize this meaningfully, you would need to know everything. You would need to know the number, you would need to deconstruct the, 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 how the number was produced, you would need to you know, do your own research to assess whether the logical correlations are correct or not. But that's, you know, that's impossible to do this at your own individual level. So somehow you always have a kind of fragmented critical perspective. Uh, and then you can say, oh, I disagree on this aspect of the report, but not on the whole of it, because I'm unable to do that. And so it creates a kind of asymmetric. You know, you have a sort of strong, uh, or at least substantial knowledge out there. And you have lots of individual people who disagree on this, who disagree on that. But perhaps the individual people who disagree don't really create a kind of counterbody of knowledge, if you see what I mean. They are kind of asymmetrically related to the uh, sort of you know, mainstream uh, knowledge. Um, so just the different ways of creating the role of knowledge. Um, so I tried, you know, when reading this, uh, uh, I tried to go quickly uh, through some of the key conclusions which are in the book. Um, why, what do IMN do? What do these international migration narratives do? I think the first thing is that they produce a shared knowledge. Uh, if you want, for example, very simply, if France wants to expose uh, irregular migrants from Mali, for example, somehow it needs cooperation of uh, the government of Mali. Somehow it has to sit at the same table and say, we have to do this, we have to do that together. Um, if the EU wants to do this with you know, uh, different African countries, there's a need to talk together. And what I noticed at the international level is that if you don't have a common sort of uh, agenda, it's very difficult to organize the meeting because you disagree on so many different things 
that somehow there's no way you can set up the meeting. So if you create a broad framework like migration development, it's vague enough, it's ambiguous enough, but it's, it's a way of constructing a relationship uh, between the different parties, between sending countries, receiving countries, NGOs, the private sector, and it's a way of uh, producing a knowledge that federates these different actors and that makes a meeting, or makes cooperation uh, possible. Does it mean people agree? Otherwise there's no point in producing uh, these shared ideas. It's precisely because stakeholders, as, as the IOS, as IOS says, precisely because stakeholders disagree that you need a kind of common umbrella um, under which you can start discussing and cooperating. So I think typically migration development today is the best example of this. No one knows what the relationship is. No one knows whether we need more migration for development or more development for less migration, whatever. It's completely unclear. But at least the framework is there, and we can organize a meeting on this topic. Even though it's, it's you know, from a substance perspective, it's completely unclear. But being unclear in that kind of context is an advantage. And people often say, well, IOs, they are inconsistent, they are contradictory, they do vague blah blah, vague statements, that, and they see this as a weakness. And I think it's not a weakness, I think it's precisely because they have to federate many actors at the world level, states uh, in the north, in the south, NGOs, private sector, foundations, all sorts of people. It's precisely because of that that they need a vague discourse. So vagueness is actually a comparative advantage. And if IMN are vague, not, it's not because people write them as stupid, it, it's because they need to be vague somehow from a functionalist uh, perspective. That's the first conclusion. Uh, of course, there's a pro-demo dimension, justifying IO's role, and constructing migration is a global challenge, is a global issue. Uh, as we all know, there's nothing global, there's nothing local. There are issues that are constructed as global, while other issues are constructed as local. And what is striking, for example, is that we talk a lot about you know, the global challenge of migration. We hardly talk about the global challenge of migration, for example. Even the two obviously correlated. But somehow we globalize the topic and then we sort of localize another topic. So this is, this is fairly interesting, how suddenly you perceive migration as a global issue. And keep in mind that uh, until the late 90s, it was almost impossible to discuss migration at the UN level. There were too many disagreements. For example, you may know that there's a UN Convention on the Rights of Migrant Workers. It's the High Commissioner for Human Rights that has set up this convention. But no one agrees, uh, no one ratifies, and it's completely unsuccessful because states don't want to the UN to talk about migration. They don't want to go to the UN talking about this topic, which they see as a sovereign uh, issue. And so there's a huge amount of work, which is also discursive work, to be done in order to construct this issue as a global topic that deserves global attention. But obviously it's not global per se, it's construct constructed as uh, such. <laughs> Ordering migration, this is a more like cognitive, uh, discursive process. Basically every language, every political language that construct reality, makes categories, and tries to make the world, the world, the world, so intelligible, so to say. So it's quite striking uh, that you know, migration is often portrayed in this report as a kind of big, threatening, chaotic process. And somehow what is needed is categories to make sense of what's going on. So very often these reports distinguish between all sorts of different migrants, student migrants, family reunification, blah, blah, and blah, creating lots of categories, labels, and saying for this we need that policy, for that group we need this other policy. So it's a kind of huge sort of filtering, organizing uh, process, which is a political process, obviously, because governments apply different policies to different people, that's for sure, but it's also 
a discursive process because language is all about ordering reality and saying this person is that, that person is this, and therefore we will apply different uh, procedures to these different people. Um, and this ends up you know, sort of understanding migration, understanding why it happens, and understanding you know, what it should ideally uh, look like. So this is all about both uh, sort of posing a diagnostic, so to say, diagnosis of what migration is, and outlining <coughs> what it should be in the future once policy recommendation has been successfully uh, implemented. So that's kind of an ordering reality process, which reflects the fact that migration is perceived by many governments as a kind of chaotic, unintelligible process. What should we do with this? Uh, well, first thing, let's study it, let's make sense of it, and once we have understood it, we'll have the tools to actually design the targeted measures that will make sense and that will enable uh, states to successfully address that. Um, this, uh, I've suppressed that because that's a kind of an you know, overall um, argument, depoliticizing migration. Uh, obviously, IOs hate the politicization of migration, which makes it very difficult to produce consensual discourses on the topic. Uh, and that's the title of the book, so I guess it's, it's, it runs throughout the, the argument. So perhaps just to conclude, um, are they right? Are they I'm incorrect? Um, obviously, no. I mean, if you read them carefully, which I tried to do, it's pretty obvious that there are so many problems, uh, so many wrong or problematic assumptions that it's not, I mean, it's very easy to say it's all uh, blah, blah, it doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, some of the you know, uh, points I make here, uh, perhaps the key thing is you know, when you address a discourse, there's what, it's, there's what is in the report, and just as important is what is not in the report. And for example, you'll never find any discussion of migration trade. You've got lots of de development, lots of discussion of migration development, but migration and trade somehow is, is put aside. And this putting aside is, is a key aspect of any discourse. You, know, you say, you talk about what you can say, and somehow you hope that people will forget that there are many key issues out there which are sort of you know, in, the, in the margins, so marginalized. Um, so yes, uh, overall, um, they are not correct. On the other hand, I guess like many of you, uh, I've been talking a lot about migration with non-migration specialists over the past month and years, with the media and with people, you know, family dinners, people ask you, you know, what, do, what do you do? Uh, what's your view on what's going on today with the migration crisis? And I'm afraid I, I stopped talking like I went when I, when I, when I, when I talk to these people. When you tell your uncle and uh, what do you think about migration, you say, well, you know, you need a global approach, uh, development, a long-term strategy, no short-term, blah, blah, blah. And you end up talking like I went, which is very depressing, but somehow it's a proof that you are, you know, if you don't know what to say, the first thing that comes to mind, you'll be embarrassed, is a kind of blah, blah on migration development and so on. So somehow they're not correct, but we do use them. Uh, perhaps not all the time, perhaps not in every aspect of our professional lives, but somehow they are in the back of my, our mind, at least in the back of my mind, and we'll about you, in the back of my mind. And sometimes we rely on these ideas uh, when we are solicited, uh, especially uh, with non-migration, uh, with non-specialists, especially in the media. Uh, we tend to, to, to use this type of ideas because somehow they make sense at first sight, and somehow they make for a kind of, of more or less solid, substantial, alternative set of worldviews on uh, migration politics, different from the kind of national anti-migration rhetoric which dominates everywhere. So we look for an alternative, and even though we're not convinced, we tend to find it in IOs, blah, blah. And this is actually a, a useful, uh, an influential aspect of their work. Uh, so just to conclude, um, I, you know, I'm an anthropologist by training, 
I know an anthropologist or many anthropologists, myth, you know, uh, a kind of discourse on something you don't know. So when you don't know about where you come from, where you're heading to, why you should do this or that, you have a mythology that explains you what should be done. And this cements social life, and this sort of, you know, provides answers to issues that cannot receive an answer. So I guess to some extent the same function is, is played by IMM. They, they tell us the, all what you wanted to know, the truth about migration, even though we don't know it. But somehow they give us the comfortable feeling that we know what we're talking about and that something could be done. You know, they give us a horizon, a kind of distant future in which things will look better. Typically a kind of mythological process. You, if you behave properly, if you do this now, on the wrong end, you'll be happier and you'll be <coughs> safe, so to say. Uh, but on the other hand, I very much like the work of Roland Barthes uh, on mythologies, and mythologies, Marx reminds us, is a way of naturalizing the social order. It's a way of saying, well, you know, today's world is not the product of history of social forces. It's like that. You know, there are rich countries, there are poor countries. There's migration from poor countries to northern countries. That's the way it is. That, it's always been like this. It will always happen that way. So it's a way of sort of, sort of so naturalizing a given state of affairs, state of affairs in today's world. That's why he argues statistically is on, on the right. It's a conservative uh, discourse. So it's something that is actually against any type of political uh, change. I know it's a little unclear and vague, but just I want to conclude with these, these, these two uh, ideas. Whether or not basically IMN can help us think innovatively and change perhaps some of the key issues relating to migration, which as we see every day, including this morning in the US, is very present in every you know, political uh, debate almost everywhere. What can we do with the help or without the help of IMN to perhaps shed light on this issue? So I've talked for enough. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.